0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: Today's program was brought to you by New York Wines, reminding you to eat and drink local this Thanksgiving. For more information, visit newyorkwines.org.
0: I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org
2: for thousands more. Good morning, Heritage Radio listeners. Today is Tuesday. It's raining here in Bushwick, and I'm here with Chef Ralston from the Food Sermon. But first, I wanted to say a quick note about uh, the election. So we're one week uh, since, and uh, we have uh, a choice now. We have an obligation on how to respond. Uh, Food is about community. Uh, It's about breaking bread with strangers and people from all walks of life, and it's been a beautiful tradition uh, that can bridge cultural differences. The hospitality industry, uh, its fabric, its core, it it, it is made up of people from all over the world, from all walks of life, and certainly undocumented workers. Uh, We should all stand together for the safety of everyone in their pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness, and in the forms of freedom and justice and true equality for all. So what I ask all of you, the Heritage Radio audience, is uh, for your focus and for your thoughts and to share them. Uh, I want to remember that we all have power in our own voice to unite. Uh, the election is not the only democratic institution. Peaceful protest is enacting change through massing our hopes and thoughts and planning on how to change uh, in a very uh, focused and dynamic way. So. Uh, In light of what is happening in our country, I would love to hear your ideas, Uh, not necessarily specifically to how the hospitality industry can respond, but since this is a food show about chefs, uh, I want to know what you think we as a community, as a hospitality world, as chefs and restaurateurs and servers and porters, uh, what can we do to have our voice heard in this country, how can we support each other, and uh, how do we support Uh, the goals to move forward in a positive way. Uh, You can email the line at heritageradionetwork.org. You can tweet at me at uh, the Sussmans. Uh, I want to continue this discussion in a positive way. Uh, That being said, I am excited to welcome my guest. Uh, Chef Ralston Williams is originally from the Caribbean island nation of St. Vincent and the Grenadines. He's a French Culinary Institute graduate, and he is the owner of the Food Sermon a restaurant in Crown Heights. The New York Times said he has a gift for meat, and the Village Voice in their review said that his affordable, accessible eatery is a blessing. He immigrated to New York at 10 years old and began his American life living in East Flatbush. He opened the first food sermon location in 2015. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. So you draw your flavors, your technique from a a variety of of areas in the West Indies correct correct and uh, you launched the food sermon as a catering company but then it sort of has become more so uh, when you first launched it you thought about it just being a catering company and how did it transition to becoming more than that
3: so we initially thought of doing some catering and maybe uh, serving the public uh, quick dinners in the evenings, maybe about four hours of dinner and so forth. And uh, it just took off. Uh, initially, we planned on doing just catering. I thought maybe I'll do a few events, then I'll be able to goof off and go to, back to St. Vincent, hang out, come back. Brooklyn, do a few more events, goof off some more, <laughs> and uh, I never imagined, there, there are two things you don't imagine when you, well, I did not, when, when I started out, I did not imagine having a review, and I did not imagine the community actually latching on to it, and in some cases, demanding more.
2: So the community actually put pressure on you to actually achieve more and sort of exceed your original self-expectations? Right. I did not want a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, you got one. <laughs> right, right,
3: right. I did not want a restaurant. restaurant for me, initially, I thought, okay, ball and chain. I need to be there all the time. I don't want to be there all the time. Um, but there was an unforeseen need there that I did not think of, you know, Um, so individuals would come for dinner, they'll have it, they'll come back some more, which always amazed me because I, I kept thinking, you're actually coming back again to eat my food because, mind you, I'm not thinking restaurant. So I had certain hours, and when I'm not open at that time, I would get a knock on the door, my shutters are down, I'm doing catering knock 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 people this one lady crawled under the shutters and was like hey why aren't you open and so i was being held to a certain standard that if you're really going to come in our community and open up you know you have to give us a certain level of service you and
2: they were right yeah so you have this sort of mantra we believe in you yes and you, you tweet it out. It's it's written in the restaurant. It's, it has become sort of your rallying cry of the food sermon. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about why you chose the name the food sermon and also what does We Believe in You mean?
3: Okay. Uh, the food sermon comes from me studying to be a minister. I studied uh, theology for several years in Huntsville, Alabama, and uh, I did not fully followed through on that. I was supposed to be a minister, supposed to be preaching to people, uh, that kind of thing. But uh, the more I thought about it, I saw it as a short-term thing. I could not see myself doing that long-term. So, fast forward to being in New York, going to school, um, eventually uh, getting clients for private events and so forth, and you needed to have a name, uh, some kind of a business. Um, and so sitting inside of the bed, I'm, I'm thinking to myself at home, what do I need to call this thing? And so me, I studied theology. It's simple. I, I, studied, I studied theology. What is my message now? It's not, you know, I'm not preaching, uh, quote, unquote, the word. What's my message? And my message is food. So, thus the food sermon. The second part of your question, which I kind of...
2: We believe in you. We
3: believe in you, came from a moment of doubt. Um, A couple of days before the restaurant was supposed to be opening, um, I kept thinking, suppose no one shows up. Um, What if they don't show up? I'm just going to open up and... No one would like the food everything will be just burnt everything so I used to throw a lot of little dinner parties uh, with with my buddies and so we had this uh, a group chat so I said, no one's going to show up and this is at five in the morning and they for some reason they all responded they're like no, they're going to show up and so from that I drew I drew the idea that they believed in me it's but It also comes from the idea that the fact that I have invested time, money, effort into that space, uh, that's me telling the community that I believe in them. I believe that whatever my blood, sweat, and tears, they're worthy of that. And when they come into the restaurant, imagine you work a whole full week you bust your butt. Uh, you get paid. You have so many options. You can go a million different places to eat. But you come into my restaurant and you get some food. I, once you order some food from me, what you're saying to me is that I trust you. I trust, I trust you and you're worthy. And in, in that case, in other words, you're saying that you believe in what I'm doing. Uh, I, they are believing that whatever I've done is, was done with integrity, uh, it will do them no harm. And, uh, so when they come in, that's what they're saying
2: to me. We believe in you. Yeah. We've known each other for a while and what has struck me about you is that you just have there's no ego it's not even like a fake send-up like you really and I mean this in, in a positive way like your self-doubt about uh, many aspects seems to fuel you to just always be a student like you're always telling me oh man I just read this I read an article I just read a cookbook uh I talked to a chef um how m- much of uh being a student helped you? Because I know you went to FCI, but how much of being like a student of food and just of people, but also sort of having that self-doubt underneath the surface of that, how much of that has fueled your ability to succeed?
3: So, I'll get a little personal here. It comes from growing up, having, uh, which I say, um, a lot of insecurities, initially. So... Grew up, grow, uh, growing up, I had what's called, I, I stutter. Hmm. or We call it stama back home in the island. So you stutter and you have these, it's, it's hard for you to spit words out. And so you're always mindful of that. So you go and you practice and you make sure that when you go to school, you'll be able to say certain words and that kind of thing. And because of that, um, I'm always aware and wanted to put the best foot forward. Um, That translates into the way I carry myself to a degree, um, the way the food is presented, and the reason for that is that it's not about me. I don't want to make it about me. Um, It's a very intimate process, so The more that I can learn, the best that I can do. I don't even think of, which I guess I'm not a good businessman. I don't even think about money, to be honest, (laughs) (laughs) which is not a good thing. Um, I do have a balance there. I have my family members who kind of nudge me. But the idea of making sure that everyone is satisfied and things are done a proper way makes me always... um, uh searching and 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 seeking better ways it's never
2: it's not i've never arrived and i'll probably never feel that way there's two aspects of your restaurant that i believe kind of build on what, what you were just talking about the first thing is the setup of the restaurant for those listeners who have not been there it really feels like we're entering your kitchen the whole restaurant feels like one big kitchen, and I'm just sitting there, kind of at the counter. It's sort of like a fun party where everyone—you know—you go to a house party. Everybody ends up in the kitchen. Why? Well, because that's where the ice is, and that's where the food is, and that there's a, usually a big island that you can converse around. And your spot feels like that. There's just a there's a order counter, and then behind it, you get to see all the action. So that's kind of the first part. the 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 second part is that you uh. You are a Seventh day Adventist, and so you are closed on the weekends. Mm -hmm. So you've made a decision uh, to be closed from sundown on Friday to Sunday morning. You open Sunday morning. Right. And so uh, you've made a decision that is based on sort of inviting people into your restaurant, but it's so much the space is a pure reflection of yourself. So I know that was kind of a lot, but I, what, I'm guessing, what I'm asking you is um, the construction of the space and, uh, and your faith, how do those play into the type of atmosphere that you create when people come into your restaurant? Um,
3: the atmosphere of the restaurant should be one where you're coming to a uh, family's home. Um, we have, even on what we so call a menu, we actually call them offerings. So you have certain, you have four offerings. However, if you don't like certain things that are being offered, you want it to be done a, a slightly different way, we will adjust and do that for you. It's just as, so you go to, uh, your parents' home, or for Thanksgiving or something, and you have certain items that you wish were different. Um, you should be able to do that um, because you are actually, like I said before, bringing your hard-earned money to us, and you are you are investing in us as we're investing in you. Um, the setup of the place, I I I, I got that from uh, being. Uh, I hope I don't offend anyone, but uh, when I go to most, quote-unquote, Caribbean restaurants, you actually get the food from the back. Someone brings it out to you. And so there's a stigma connected to, okay, well, someone's bringing the food. You don't see who's doing it. uh, You don't see it made. And I wanted to break that all down. It also holds us accountable to the way we carry ourselves and the way we prepare the food. So even if uh, you do one little thing, if you my rule is, if you go to the back, you come out, you wash your hands, even if what you went in the back for nothing. Uh, it's all about the visual and, and, and making sure that the guests are secure in what, in what we're doing. And so we don't want any walls. We don't want to, um, uh, any batteries up because I want you to trust us as we trust you.
2: I want to talk about, so remember when I was, I came to your restaurant I was driving back from the Rockaways over the summer, and I came by and we talked outside for a while. And you were telling me, I mean you just alluded to the fact that you you said earlier, I don't care about money, I should care about money, but you did tell me about a difficult actual business decision that you made when you made a change to the menu. Uh, you swap things around. Yes. I want you to talk a little bit about that. As a chef, as a business owner, it put you at a, a difficult crux where you had to make a hard choice. Yes. What, what happened?
3: So when we started out, you know, we had an extensive menu. Um, small kitchen, big menu. It was, there are a few things, especially the fact that it's my first restaurant. I've never had a restaurant before. I have limited uh, line experience by choice, um, so you don't calculate the movements. So you have, I had, so basically in essence, I had about three different menus in one. So, so we had the sentimental stuff like the curry goat and the stewed chicken and things like that. Then we had rotis which is like a naan, and we made them fresh every day. And then you have, so we call the stewed meats, we call those the usual suspects, which is what everyone expects when they go to a Caribbean restaurant. And then we had the rotis. And then you had the bowls, which were just my creation of, I guess it comes from a a place of, of, I guess, uh, invention and laziness, I guess, because the reason why I made the bowls is that, well, first of all, I fell in love with the bowls before I knew what I was going to put in them. And so I just needed to figure out what I was going to do. But I created these sauces. So the sauces, let's, let's for, for instance, the, uh, the coconut ginger sauce, that comes from really and truly simple. I just didn't want to make rice and peas. So, rice and peas is basically rice, beans, and, and coconut milk. And so, I didn't want to make that. Uh, it wasn't, uh, one, it's not, it's stereotypical, uh, stereotypical when it comes to being a, a, a Caribbean restaurant, everyone wants rice and peas. Uh, but where I'm from, we didn't grow up making it that way. We made it with, uh, just made it totally different. So. For me to have a middle ground, I created that sauce. Anyways, so we're making a lot of food. So we're spending, even if we have a really great day, then we have to go around, go out and get more food. Even if you have a great day across the board, in other words, you are you have to come back and buy. You're not buying two or three things. You have to buy six, seven things. So basically, you're not really making any money. I didn't realize that. I just thought, OK, well, we're busy. We're doing well. Finally, we crunched the numbers, and we realized that the bowls were really what was running the business. The
2: sentimental stuff was taken away from what we were earning. Was it because labor on making certain items was really high, or was it because stocking it was?
3: Labor, really high? price point in reference to acquiring it. Mm-hmm. You know, the meats we used were goat, uh, oxtails, that and, kind of thing. You know,
2: you're getting halal stuff, high quality. Yeah, yeah.
3: Right. So the margins were not big.
2: So what did you have to do?
3: I just cut them
2: out. So, I mean, so how did the menu evolve? Where does it stand now? So, the. <laughs> what, what, got, what got the axe? So, everything
3: that did not add to uh, what we were doing, in reference to the bottom line, I cut it. So, imagine I get my numbers from my. Uh, There was a a gentleman that was running um, crunching numbers for me, and I said, "He says he gives me the news, and he says you're going to have to either raise your prices this much, or you're you're not going to make any money." I was like, "Why?" I mean, my margins. So what I was doing was comparing myself to the neighborhood uh, restaurants where they have oxtails for like twelve bucks or that kind of thing, and so that's what I was pricing my. But I did not realize that. Their sourcing was not the same. So anyways, so once he gave me that news, it's for me, I have to do it. Either I do it now, or I wouldn't get, get around to doing it. So I said, next week, we're not making these things anymore. I literally cried, because I knew that within my community, there are people who...
2: Yeah, how did the neighborhood react to that? Sort of the, you know, you removed the usual suspects, the things that they always anticipate finding at a Caribbean restaurant. Those were the things that had to go. The things that the New
3: York Times wrote about and things like that. So Mm -hmm. here comes, so one lady comes into the restaurant and she's looking for her, uh, I think she's looking for goat. And she says to me, when she realizes no goat, which, mind you, uh, was about four months before. So she comes in, which means she hasn't been in for four months, which proves my point. Anyways, so she comes in and she says, oh, you sold out.
2: Oh, that's an that's a extremely difficult you thing to You sold
3: out. You sold out for them. So I was like, what do you mean? That, oh the New York Times wrote about your stuff and you took it off the menu and uh, you sold that for them and for them she means because my neighborhood is is now quote unquote uh, gentrified mm-hmm. she means I sold that for quote unquote the white folk
2: mm-hmm.
3: and I she caught me off guard I mean usually prepared for things like that but when she said that kind of stunned me uh, because it was the first thing from my mind. I literally closed the restaurant the next day. I told everyone, I was like, okay, we're not, let's go hang out. I always do this when we hit a rough spot. I said, let's go hang out, let's figure this out because I really, I can't believe she said that. <laughs> so I, was like, I kept thinking, does everyone feel that way? So once we hung out and we regrouped, we realized, no, let's stick to what we found out. And so it turns out now we are making uh, money the same. Let's say we make the same amount of money, but we're spending less,
2: mm-hmm.
3: We're less overhead, things like that.
2: Um, well, I don't necessarily, I don't want to shy away from what the, the <laughs> things that we're touching on right now. Yeah. So I think there's a couple things that we've, that you've now touched on, which is uh, a fast casual restaurant and the challenges that they face in pricing a menu. I've had uh, basically everything at your restaurant. And I think if a waiter would bring it to me on a white tablecloth, I would, easily pay $34 for it if we're in Manhattan. I don't think that anyone who's ever eaten at your restaurant is going to disagree. But people are going to still shy away from the idea that to sit on a stool and to eat high-quality food that's made to order... I mean, when they order salmon at your restaurant, you're back there cooking the salmon to order as anyone would in an upscale restaurant. It's under $20, right? right? Still, people are finding that expensive. The other thing that, that you addressed is... Um, a sort of a gentrifying of Brooklyn and also this sort of uh, idea that there is a quote-unquote ethnic restaurant that people are seeking out to have some sort of authentic or not authentic experience. So um, how do you deal with sort of unpacking all these things? It's like you're just a guy who wants to cook food and then you got to deal with all the financial and political implications of having a Caribbean fast casual sort of upscale restaurant in Crown Heights?
3: Um, the way I deal with it, I just have to be myself. I cannot apologize for being me. So yes, uh, we're considered Caribbean, but I consider myself or consider the restaurant Caribbean inspired because for most... Caribbean restaurants, they really um, hold on to tradition. See, this is how we made it back home. This is how we did things back then. And so that's their goal. For me, tradition is not my goal. It's actually my starting point. Um, I grew up vegetarian. I didn't grow up eating meat. So that's to say, for that lady who said to me that I was selling out, actually, if If you wanted to say I was selling out, selling out was actually making the meat to begin with, because I didn't grow up eating that kind of thing. Um, I grew up strict vegetarian, uh, vegan, if you wanted, before vegan was considered for me a word or what have you. But I really think of the food sermon as a story of my journey through my life with food. There's a lot of things in there that are not typical of a Caribbean restaurant, but the flavors are familiar, and I just make what I like, or what I wanted to have,
2: you know? I'm here with Chef Ralston Williams. He owns the Food Sermon, a Caribbean-inspired restaurant in Crown Heights. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back on Heritage Radio Network. Stay with us.
1: And this one is called Butterscotch by TAC We'll be right back. Thanksgiving is a great time to support New York farmers, including local wineries. Find great white wines, red wines, and rosés from Long Island, the Hudson River region, the Finger Lakes, and beyond at New York City wine shops and restaurants. This Thanksgiving, New York Wines is proud to partner with Fleischer's Craft Butchery, which supports local farmers raising heritage-breed turkeys in New York State. With a healthy dose of ingenuity and a collaborative winemaking culture, the number of wineries in New York has grown exponentially over the last 10 years, as has the quality of the wines they produce. New York is a world-class wine region offering quality, variety, and value. The perfect trifecta for a bountiful Thanksgiving feast. For information on more than 400 New York wineries, please visit newyorkwines.org.
2: Welcome back to The Line. I'm here with Chef Ralston Williams, if you're just joining us. He is the owner of Food Sermon and opened in 2015 in Crown Heights. It has gotten major accolades from tons of food bloggers. It is well-loved in the community. The New York Times and The Village Voice are huge fans, as am I. I'm so happy that he's here to talk about his inspiration and the whole... Uh, ethos surrounding his restaurant. Uh, I want to s- go back in time now and talk about you coming to the United States. You are from St. Vincent and the Grenadines, and your family moved to the United States and you remained in the Caribbean with your aunt, correct? Close. Sort of? Yeah. Okay. And so take me through kind of uh, your a bit of your childhood and then how how and when you ended up in Brooklyn and East Flatbush.
3: Sure. So the idea was to... And this is common in my community. So my mom was coming to New York to meet my dad. My dad was here already. And so there was only one visa, which was hers. And so she left me with a family friend. Dad promised it would take a few months or so and so she went ahead and with plans to send for me later on and that took seven years (laughs) Um, which were wonderful seven years Um, so the lady that she left me with her name is Gloria Farrell she raised me in such a way imagine you have someone or, like, you're taking care of someone's pet or something, you want to return them to the pet. You want to return them clean, well-behaved, no broken bones. So seven years of that is what I had of her protecting me, making sure that she was going to return to my mom a well-rounded human being. Uh, I think sometimes she probably went overboard, but overall I think she did pretty well. So my childhood growing up um, was waking up early. We had goats, we had sheep, we had cows, um, uh, Going, uh, taking them out into pasture, uh, milking them, what we call scalding the milk, and we, I guess you call it here, uh, pasteurizing it or something. Um, uh, Taking the cream off—that's uh, why it always makes me laugh. When I came to the states initially, and I—I'll go back to what I was saying. But uh, there was all these cereal commercials about how it stayed crunchy in milk, and I said, "Okay, well, I, I, as soon as my cereal hits my milk, it gets soggy." And I always thought it was all a lie. I was like they're lying. I never knew. I've never had cold milk before. <laughs> <laughs> so, so in the States, you know, cold milk was a thing. But for me, it's growing up, we always drank warm milk because we had to pasteurize it first, mm-hmm. right? Anyway, so back to what I was saying. So I grew up as an active young man. We had mango trees. We had grapefruit trees. I had a neighbor who we lost. Uh, we lost uh, last week. She was late to rest, uh, Uh, this past Thursday but she taught me so much she taught me how to make butter and how to make uh, chocolate and do so many different things for me back then it was a chore but now I look back on it it was like there's little seeds and little ingredients being planted within me to do what I'm doing now my aunt suffered from what's called rheumatoid arthritis so she was often bedridden all the time um, in the little house that we had, there were windows right above where the kitchen was. So she would be in her bed yelling down to me as a five, six-year-old boy, and she would yell downstairs, she's like, okay, you ready? Go get uh, two cups of flour. And I'd run back, get two cups of flour, put them in a bowl, then i will come back and say, okay, I've done that. And she would say, go get salt and get uh, a little bit of a pinch of sugar or what have you. Uh, coconut oh. and then I'll be making I'll making dumplings or making the beginnings of bread we had on Fridays what's called Sabbath meal and sometimes she's not able to get out of bed because Friday is what we call preparation day you prepare for the Sabbath um, so you would prepare your clothing, prepare your food so that on Sabbath you wouldn't have to do any of those things um, so as a young man there are many times where I would have to take care of that. And so that kind of shaped my way of living, character, that kind of thing.
2: When you ended up moving here, you were 10 years old. Yes. What type of uh, experience is that like, to immigrate to the United States, be reunited with your family? culture shock coming to Brooklyn? Were you, were you prepared to be reunited with your family in any sort of mental or emotional way?
3: I think, I think uh, the idea of reuniting with family or meeting my two brothers, which I've never met, uh, because, you know, it's seven years, uh, life goes on. So within that time, my parents had two kids. Um, but yes, first of all, when I came to the States, I expected to see horses and skyscrapers. The reason why is that I grew up watching a lot of westerns. We only got television now there, we got TBS. So imagine in the 80s, all we got was TBS. So we got a lot of Braze game, Brave games, which I never watched. And then a lot of westerns like Roy Rogers and uh, Wagon Train and those kind of things. And so um, I saw that and then uh, there was uh, the Jeffersons, which I can never I was never allowed to watch, but I can see the beginning theme, and you could see all the buildings, so I thought, okay, well, they have horses and they ride their horses to the skyscrapers, and then you know whatever um, <laughs> so when I came to the States, it was totally shocking to me um, and then I met my my family and Initially I I became a little uh, homesick well very homesick I was I would I guess I was considered one of those I would be considered strange because I would stay in my room and in the darkness and just think and imagine being back home uh, it was very hard to uh, get uh acclimated to living in the state's um even I thought my mom had well, my brother at that time was about, hmm, he was very young, so he loved a lot of yogurt, I guess. So when I, my, the, the day after I landed, I started, I tasted a yogurt, and I was like, wow, this, this is spoiled. So I threw that away, and I tasted the other one, and I was like, wow, this is spoiled. She had about, maybe about 15 yogurts in there, and I threw them all away. And she came home. She's like, "Where are the yogurts?" And I say to her, "Oh, they were all bad. They were all spoiled. They were, you know, the milk was bad and everything." She's like, "No, that's how they're supposed to taste." And I'm like, "People eat that, <laughs> you know?" Like, she's like, "Yes, people do eat that,
2: you know." Uh, at what point, if ever, did you feel like you had? Become acclimated to living in Brooklyn. Was there a certain? Did it happen gradually, or was there a time when you felt like, "Oh wow, now I, I really feel like I am a Brooklynite." You know?
3: No, I don't know what it means. Uh huh. I mean, in that time, in the beginning of the '90s, there was still a lot of uh, a lot of drugs uh, outside my window, outside my door. I look across the street. There were prostitutes. There were people addicted to drugs, people living in abandoned cars. I would walk by them every day to go to school. Um, there were gangs, you know, I would have to go and pick up my brother for, uh, after school. And several times I would, I was, uh, what we call jumped or beaten up maybe because, you know, I was one of the cool kids or what have you, but I mean, I'm talking about having to go to the hospital and things like that. Um, Um, that kind of uh, experience made me miss home even more but then my an event happened where my dad my dad was murdered Uh, so I came to the States in September 29th, 1987. And my dad was murdered September 24th, 1990. So imagine I came to the States, I met my family, my ready-made family. Uh, my dad is there. We kind of really didn't get along all the time. You know, He, uh, what I say, he drank a lot. He loved the bottle. Um, But the one thing I got from him was he loved to season meats, and so he would season them, especially at Thanksgiving time, and then he would disappear. He would go to the local watering hole or what have you, or he'll go and season other people's turkeys or hams or what have you. but, and then leave the turkey on and I would eventually have to pay attention to it and so that's part of me learning how to cook meat and so forth uh, he just had the unction to leave and he would go and drink and come back drunk and by then the the food is well at least the meat part is is
2: ready to go you know how, how much of that period of your life uh, fuels what you do today? Is it still a major part of you that you think of every day? Or do you, do you feel like uh, you've been able to sort of overcome what, what to me sounds like a very painful, challenging period of your life?
3: Um, for me, it's just what drives me is I'm grateful for this country. I'm grateful to be able to do what I'm doing in spite of making so many errors. Like, like what? I've embarked on so many journeys where it comes to studying theology, then wanting to be some kind of a computer engineer, or just trying to find yourself and screwing that up and still being able to. I mean, I really think of this as the food sermon as really was actually like my last option for not being like a loser. You know, like when people say, aren't you happy? I'm like, no, I'm happy not to be a loser. You know, to actually be able to leave some kind of a a name behind where we've never had that. We've always been, uh, I guess because of my dad's death, um, we've always been uh, i guess cocooned you know we've, no one really remembers us my brothers and my mom and i we carried ourselves pretty well and but no one really checked us out they were always we we they were givers and takers and we were always the ones giving and so being able to have something that we I can leave and say, okay, well, you know, whenever I have kids, if I do, well, my dad did this, or you just have that name going. Um, it's all I care about. That's my currency. That's my payment. You know, I don't really ever th- like I said, I don't think of money. My saving uh, grace is actually just the f- cooking the food and, and, um and having a decent name connected to
2: something. I read that uh, you were at one point working at a storage facility and you would go sit outside FCI and you would watch people walking <laughs> in and out of class and that you took a lot of tours of culinary schools before you before you actually went. You You went more than one time to kind of investigate. So I want to hear a little bit about culinary school but also... You were at a dinner once, and a chef spoke to you, and something happened. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about... There was someone specific. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Tyler, right? Tyler Cord. Yeah. What happened with Tyler? My man.
3: I went to a dinner party. I really didn't want to go. and um,
2: Got dragged along to a dinner party? Got dragged along,
3: and I went, and so... Uh, one of the hosts said, oh, there's a good chef back here. I know you want to be the chef in the back. And I went to the back, and I was introduced to Tyler. And I mentioned him, yeah, I want to go to the French School Institute, such and such. And then he says to me, are you sure? He's like, yeah. And then he's like, well, I was named alumnus of the year in 2009 or something like that. And I was like, oh, cool. And he's like, well, before you... Decide to go and spend all this money, come and hang out at my restaurant,
2: which was where what
3: this was, was number seven restaurant in, okay. in Green.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, come and hang out at my restaurant and just see if you like it or not. And I'm like, really? Mm-hmm. Most most times people talk, they really don't. They're just saying things. And but I took him up on that, and so I went there, and I was hooked. I it was one of the places where I realized there being a chef and cooking are two different things, the technicality of it, um, there's a process to things. Um, It was really eye-opening and an amazing experience. Um, And he just took me under his wing and really, really changed my life. He was one of the main reasons I got into uh, FCI. FCI, I... I worked at a storage facility. Uh, Every time I think of that, doing that, I really, really (laughs) get something in my stomach here. But anyways, um, I hated that job, by the way. Um, But I um, would leave work and go and sit outside of the French School Institute and just watch uh, the students come out in there breaks and have the cigarettes, and I would just, I'm really good, and I realize that's something that a lot of people do, I'm a a good visualizer and a good dreamer, I dream with my eyes wide open, and I just imagine myself in certain positions, you know, Um, and then I scheduled several visits, knowing I would never be able to go, I couldn't afford it, So I would just go so I can get to see the inside of the building. I would just schedule these visits and take these tours. And I'll get to see the students cooking and that kind of thing. And then what I would then do is uh, I started Googling best chefs in the world. And then once I do that, did that, then you have a list. You make a list. Then you see if they're on YouTube or if they have any interviews on NPR radio. Then after that, you'll figure out what books they've written. And then you'll just buy one or two. Before I was able to buy one or any of the books, I would actually, you know, I think, on some of these uh, book sites, you they will show you a little preview of the book. And so then I'll just zoom into that and try to read that because I really don't have any money. Um and just listened to a lot of interviews. So once I found out who started the um, French Coal Institute, uh, Dorothy Hamilton, uh, God bless her, uh, she um, really inspired me. So I, she had something on, I think it was NPR or something, and and she had a lot of interviews. Chef's Chef's Story, I think. Or,
2: yeah, here at Heritage. It, it was here? Mm-hmm. Oh,
3: yeah. And I listened to all of those. And so I, got my, I compiled my list from her, too. What attracted me to her as well is the fact that she, I read somewhere that she had a home in an island called Mustique. Mustique is a, one of the small, small islands of St. Vincent and the Grenadines. They make up the Grenadines. And so we had all that connection going on. And so that's what I knew. I didn't visit any more schools. I only visited the French School Institute.
2: Um, And I just went from there. And here you are now with a restaurant in Crown Heights. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Chef, thanks so much for joining us. This has been a pleasure. I really appreciate your time. Listeners, please visit him at the Food Sermon. What's the address?
3: Uh, We're at uh,
2: 355 Rogers Avenue, Brooklyn, Brooklyn. This has been The Line. Join us every Tuesday at 11 a.m. on Heritage Radio Network. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you.